Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, listeners. We have a part two for you today. I'm ready to it because I'm just really excited that Melody is back because I feel like we had so much that was left unsaid and not because of any reason other than we just ran out of time. time. Yeah. We like to try to give you bite-sized episodes. We get it. People's attention spans are not what they used to be. So we decided, Melody, we'd have you back for part two. I'm excited to be back. Thank you. So the first time that we had you on, we really did talk a lot about how autism is presented in females. You know, we did talk a little bit about masking. Today, we really wanted you to come back so that we could get into like the nitty gritty of, you know, what do we do when we are trying to get that diagnosis? We're trying to get services, but the child's behavior is not problematic, right? Amanda and I see the kiddos, you know, that are pushing tables over, kicking chairs, they are getting the most attention, right? And problem solving. But what about our other kiddos? Can you kind of talk about some of the cases that you've seen that you've helped out that are that have this kind of situation where the there's no problematic behaviors that we see what has been your experience? Yeah, I think that it's important to get across that you have an understanding of what autism looks like below the surface. Like you said, there's it's easier to identify those like more problematic behaviors. They're calling for more attention. They're affecting people around them. But if you have an understanding of what's going on below the surface, some of those more nuanced signs, and you're able to communicate that, I think the people around you are going to be more likely to listen to you. So I think education is really important, kind of understanding what the current criteria is for autism, and then looking at your own child and kind of noticing the signs and things that might not be apparent in schools, but you're seeing more behind the surface and kind of connecting the dots of like, I see this kind of profile, maybe a sensory stuff or social stuff. And this is how I think it's impacting them in school. This is the impact that I feel like it's having on them. And I feel like they would really benefit from services in these ways to show that you have kind of a fuller understanding of what it looks like, how it's impacting them and how they might benefit from getting more identification and services around what they're dealing with. Yeah, I think that identification is so important. Like, Far too often I see kiddos who either have a diagnosis of autism like outside the school or maybe there is like that suspicion, but on their IEP and what the district has kind of categorized them under is more speech and language or specific learning disability because there's, you know, minor challenges. And when I say that child, but in comparison to some kiddos with autism where they're, you know, having trouble with social skills or having trouble with a few areas of academics. And so they're categorized eligibility wise under these other eligibility categories. And 
the school looks at it as, oh, well, this is really the only thing that we're worried about. This is the only thing that we're addressing with the IEP. It's, you know, the specialized academic instruction for reading specifically, or it's the speech and language for social skills or whatnot. And we forget, or some people turn a blind eye at, you know, the behavioral aspect and the other aspects or characteristics of autism that present more internally that really significantly are affecting the child that in turn sometimes does affect the social skills or the academics. And it's not until we get more of a push from like maybe the parents or an outside provider that says, no, there's a diagnosis of autism. There's more challenges. There's more that we need to address that then like, if we get involved, we're getting more action. And I don't know if it's, is it that schools are not looking at these diagnoses the same way if, you know, they're not seeing these problematic behaviors? Like, is there a trend of like, why you're seeing things like this happen? Because we do see this a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, a big part of it is that schools don't really have the resources to look that closely at the things that aren't Mm -hmm. like screaming at them. So that's why kind of in in a supportive way, do a little bit of their work for them. If you can manage to come across, not like you're telling them what the diagnosis is, but just kind mm-hmm. of highlighting things that they might not have noticed because they just don't have the resources to be able to look that closely and notice some of these nuances. So if you can frame it that way in a supportive way of like, here are some of the things that I've been noticing that maybe are not super apparent at school, but I think are having a big impact on my child. Absolutely. And I think that oftentimes a teacher may be kind of, they have observed something not thinking it's anything, but they actually say something. And then that's a perfect opportunity for the parent. It kind of opens up the floodgate, right? Oh, you know, that's a really great observation. This is what we feel like is happening when they're, you know, kind of spaced out or when they get up and they're not really aware where they're at. Like I find that open dialogue is helpful with a lot of my clients you know, the everydayness of speaking to a teacher, we really try to maintain that relationship between the parent and the teacher. And so sometimes we'll get, you know, the parent's perspective of it, but we find that those conversations and then following up with an email, right? So that the teacher verbally kind of heard it and then has something in writing to refer back to, because yeah, if they're in a classroom of, you know, 20 to 30 kids, and maybe there's an aide, you know, those two adults are focused on different things as well, right? So that's a really great avenue to take is to try to be as supportive and direct them in a way because you do know your child best, right? What are some of the common signs of like an internal presenter that you could kind of share with our listeners? Yeah, so, you know, some of these are just kind of basic signs of autism, but because you're seeing them, your child across different contexts, you'll probably notice them in a different way than what they would notice at school. So things like having hyper focus on certain things, also known as special interests, or I call it an attention tunnel. So a lot of kids have interests, but you kind of recognize when it's like really an interest when they're like, really deep into something and maybe, you know, it spans different areas of their lives. So that tends to be something to notice. 
things like sensory differences, you know, sensory sensitivities that you notice that others might notice or hyposensitivities where they're sensory seeking in different ways. I think one thing that's really common in people socialized as girls and women is perfectionism. I think that's really common if you think about it, you know, if they're investing a lot into masking and fitting in, it would make sense that, you know, they're really invested in maintaining a certain image to people. The stakes seem to be higher for them. If they mess up, it has a bigger consequence for them internally. So perfectionism is a really big one. Girls and women tend to internalize their problems a little bit more, probably because they're sent messages that it's not as acceptable for them to kind of make a scene. So they keep these things inside. And then, of course, that leads to things like anxiety, you know, hypervigilance, depression. It can lead to things like mutism, just sort of shutting down. And then, unfortunately, in some cases, things like self-harm, if you're really internalizing the things that are going on and you can't find a way to kind of express that. And then we talked about this a little bit in our last interview, but noticing what's going on within the friendships that they do have, there tends to be a higher conflict in friendships within autistic girls and women, just sort of noticing like, do do the friendships end unexpectedly? That's a common thing that happens, like the friendship. And what's so interesting is it's always categorized, especially like in middle school. Oh, it's just, you know, drama. It's just drama. It's like so easily cast off that way. And, And I'm happy that you even brought up perfectionism that really any woman is faced with, but in particular how it's labeled. Even like in elementary school, what I've seen is there's, and I've had clients like this, where there's a lot of pure conflict, but the observer isn't diving too deep into it. So like the teacher or the school psychologist who's like doing an observation on the playground sees that like, oh, this student is having a conversation with peers and they're often around certain peers. And so that like, objectively looks like oh they have friends they're playing they're socializing but what's really happening is that there's conflict conversations occurring like every day and these students are getting into fights or they might see them together but what is happening is that student is asking to play or asking to participate and the other students are saying no we don't want to because you play in this way and we don't like it and so I think it requires more of the school team to be doing like that a little bit extra of the digging to really find out like what is happening with these conversations? Because just because peers are talking to each other doesn't mean it's a positive interaction and doesn't mean that they're friends, so to speak. But I think we see that too often where it's like, oh, well, I see them talking all the time with peers. So therefore it should just be fine. Exactly. Yeah. And I think with that, like tendency for girls to be kind of more people pleasers in line with that, masking and perfectionism you know they want to be accepted and so they're more likely to kind of go along with things so that might look like things are going fine socially mm-hmm. but a little bit closer attention maybe they're being taken advantage of in certain ways maybe they're being kind of subtly bullied or teased in ways that people aren't really noticing or they're even not really noticing at times so there are a lot of subtleties in there I think to pay attention to Yeah. Well, I have seen some families where, you know, if they don't have, they're not under eligibility of autism, maybe the school didn't even look kind of the scenarios I I mentioned before, but they do have a diagnosis and maybe the genetic doesn't even know there's a diagnosis of autism. And so 
I think it's hard for the team members to look at it in this light if they don't have all that information. So I think it is always important for families if you have a diagnosis, even if it's not part of the IEP, so to speak, like to be sharing it with team members as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Another thing that I think is worth noting is empathy. And I think I'm hoping that there's more of an awareness around the misperceptions around empathy and autism. It seems like that's starting to shift. But yeah, this idea that autistic people lack empathy is, is not accurate. And I'd be happy to talk more about the nuances of that. But autistic we might have to have you on for a part three then because that in and of itself is a whole, but I'm glad that you at least yeah brought it forward. I agree. I think there is there has been a subtle shift in the last couple of years of that narrative, you know, and people realizing it's false. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was like, we could do a whole episode on that too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean there there's a whole lot in there to talk about. And I think, you know, an important thing to recognize in girls and women and people socialize as girls and women is that that there is an, an intense empathy there. It's more of a, an emotional empathy. And you as a parent should be able to kind of notice if that's happening. And one thing that I think is interesting is that it shows up often in regards to animals or even inanimate objects. So autistics tend to have like strong connections with animals, feel really, really connected to them or stuffed animals or certain toys or things like that. And that makes sense. You know, if there's difficulty socializing with peers, they can transfer some of that to these things that are within their realm of comfort, like an animal or an object. So I think that's a really important sign too. Oh, yeah. I think that that, uh, thinking back on some of my clients that are, are female, identified female, you're hitting a lot of boxes that teens like had no idea, right? Or even myself, like just experiencing it, but having had some clients and, you know, obviously not every single thing that you said was for every single client, but I think that that's really important for parents to understand some of these examples. Cause a lot of times I feel like if they're not part of a community or a Facebook group that is talking about, Oh, I see my daughter with autism do this, or I see this, you know, even with boys, you know, presenting differently and so many boys being diagnosed, we don't often talk about what does it look like? And that's why we were so excited to have you back on just to really talk through these examples, because that really resonated with a lot of our listeners, or at least the ones that messaged us. (laughs) And so kind of as we're wrapping up, I wanted to get into and we touched a little bit on like, you know, why the diagnosis is important, right? Oftentimes, if there's a misdiagnosis, or it's a late one, first off, we just don't see the support and services and early intervention. What are some other factors of parents kind of getting that late diagnosis? Yeah, I think early diagnosis is so important for so many reasons. And if the diagnosis is missed, it tends to create a pretty deep sense of feeling different in general. And feeling like you're expected to fit into this box, this kind of neurotypical box, putting tons of energy into fitting into that box, appearing normal to other people, and all the while your self-esteem is just plummeting. And you're kind of losing your sense of yourself because you're just creating these like images, what you feel like you're supposed to be doing, how you're supposed to be presenting. And that creates a huge disconnect uh, within your sense of self and identity. I can't tell you how many adult clients I have that come to me saying they just got diagnosed and they're like, I don't know who I am. I've been identifying with masks my whole life. Um, The luxury of even knowing what my preferences are or who I am. And 
having to kind of later in life rebuild that sense of identity from scratch, that's really, really common. And then, of course, you know, all the energy that it takes to put into masking. Um, I was just going to say that, Melody, just even the energy that it takes, you know, to follow this story that, you know, and this narrative that you think you are this person or you have to fit into that box. That's a lot <laughs> for any adult, but just even especially if we're looking at children, that that is a lot of mental energy. Yeah, I think that's really important for families to hear because you know, I've had a number of clients and even other people I've talked to who, you know, might ask like, well, I'm just not sure if my child, you know, would fall on the spectrum. I don't know. I don't know if I want to go and get a diagnosis or do an assessment. And, you know, what I try to tell them is more information isn't a bad thing. It's always going to be a good thing. And, you know, the more information you have, the better you can support your child. Because I know that that's sometimes a hesitation of parents. They're scared of a diagnosis or they just think, oh, well, it's probably not. So why bother with the assessment? But, you know, what we see if that happens is that sometimes these kids go undiagnosed and that can be even more harmful. So I think it's good to hear like what would happen if you're able to support them or what else would happen if we have a later diagnosis and why that early, I mean, just like early intervention, it's so important. The earlier we can find out more information about our child's needs, the more we can help support them. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that about I think it's really important to even get the child themselves involved in the diagnostic process. You know, I think people are really afraid of the word autism or the diagnosis of autism, and it doesn't have to be a bad word. So if it's something that you're kind of noticing or suspecting in your child, maybe like bring that into their lives in a way that like normalizes it, you know, like there, I think one really nice avenue for that is there are a lot of children's books now about autism and different presentations and neurodiversity, get some of those books, explore them, see if your child recognizes some of themselves in these books, normalize the word autism, normalize neurodiversity, and kind of, you know, involve them in the process around exploring ways that they could feel more supported. And maybe we should bring this to your teacher and see if she can, you know, let you sit next to your friend and that might make things easier for you or things like that. You know, best case scenario, your child recognizes themselves in that and is able to kind of join you in that process. Worst case scenario, they don't, but you know what, they have a better understanding of neurodiversity and maybe they'll be more accepting to their peers who are neurodivergent. So I think that's a win-win situation as long as you're taking an affirmative approach and not a pathologizing one. Absolutely. Well, Willie, if people want to contact you or have additional questions, where can they reach you? By the way, I forgot to mention that I myself am autistic. That's something that I always I, like to mention. I, yeah. I remember it from the last one, but I'm glad that you, you brought yeah. it up again. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's important to identify myself as part of the community that I'm talking about. Um, so I have a, a, an understanding of some of that later in life diagnosis and effects of that. Um, I'm happy to answer questions, help people find resources. My a group practice that I work under Dr. Crystal Lee. She's created the practice. It's called LA Concierge Psychologist. So laconciergepsychologist.com is our website. We've got lots of resources on there and ways to contact us and our services and all that. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Melody. This even for us to be able to better articulate what we see in our clients. It's so helpful for us and We hope it was helpful for you as well, listeners. Melody, thank you so much for coming on. And listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.